SciShow Tangents is brought to you by Manukora Honey. Merriam-Webster defines honey as a sweet, viscid material elaborated out of nectar of flowers in the honey sack of various bees. And that's all good and fine, but old Miriam and Webster (laughs) used some words that I don't know and didn't really hit the mark when it comes to talking about Manukora honey. First off, Manukora isn't just sweet and viscid. It's got a rich, complex taste and a creamy, melt-in-your-mouth texture that you won't find in your average, everyday grocery store honey. And nectar of flowers doesn't cut it when you're talking about the nectar of the Manuka tea tree in New Zealand. The only nectar these bees feed on in the production of Manukora honey. In conclusion, Manukora ain't just your average boring dictionary defined honey. It's special honey. I know this firsthand. Uh, they sent us a jar, a squeeze bottle, and some honey sticks. And we've been sharing them around the office of their MGO 850 Plus, their best selling honey. It's not the same. <laughs> it's not <laughs> what you're thinking of when you think of honey. Look, have you ever think to yourself, if like, a company made grapes for the first time, we'd go nuts. It's, I feel like honey is this way, where I'm like, if anybody like made this up, we'd be going out of our minds. But this is like if honey happened again. Did you like the honey, Sari? So I moved into a new place where there's no insulation in the walls. And so uh, I've been drinking a lot of tea. And mm-hmm. sometimes that tea needs a little bit of honey. And I initially poured in this honey thinking it was going to be grocery store honey. And then I was like, that's different. And now it's a little uh, breakfast treat. It's a great breakfast treat because it's 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 a little like it's for toast. I could put like this on my butter toast and I'm like, oh, I'm having an experience. So Merriam-Webster also defines ultimate as the best or most extreme of its kind. Now that one fits Manukora to a T. Indulge in the best or most extreme sweet viscid material elaborated out of nectar of flowers in the honey sack of various bees from Manukora. If you head to manukora.com slash tangents, you can get $25 off their starter kit, which comes with the MG850 Plus Manuka Honey, a free travel pack of honey sticks, a free wooden spoon, and also a free guidebook. That's M-A-N-U-K-O-R-A dot com slash tangents to get $25 off your starter kit. Welcome to SciShow Tangents, the lightly competitive knowledge showcase starring some of the geniuses that make the YouTube series SciShow happen. This week, as always, I'm joined by Stefan Chan. Oh, hi. Yeah, hi. How are you? How's it going? Stefan, what's your tagline? Can you zip me up? Sam Schultz is also here. Hello. Sam, what's your tagline? I'm just bones. No, you're not. Yes, I am. You have all kinds of parts that aren't bones. Mm -hmm. Sarah Riley's also here. Yeah, and I'm more than just bones. Yeah. Mm. I don't like new energetic (laughs) Sari. This is not energetic Sari. Does it seem like energetic Sari? Yes. Uh, I'm sorry. It's a new energetic Sari because she's read all the comments about people who think she's should be president of the United States. Have you seen it? I have not seen it. Yeah, Sari for president. What? Why? Who? Who Because she's so great. Everybody uh-huh. is like, these three doofuses and Sari is basically <laughs> SciShow Tangents. There was just a Reddit post about Tangents and how great it is. Hmm, what do they say about me? But most, mostly about how great Sari is. A lot is about how great Sari is. There was some discussion about breaking up the responsibilities of the science couch because it <laughs> seems a little one-sided sometimes. Yeah, it's like the science cushion. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> What's your tagline? My tagline is the knife wife thing, and I'll leave it a mystery. Okay. Whoa. And I'm Hank Green, and my tagline is... Was that ham okay? Every week here on Tangents, we get together to try to one-up amaze and delight each other with science facts. We're playing for glory, and we're also playing for Hank Bucks, which we award from week to week. I think I'm losing now. We do everything we can to stay on topic, but judging by the previous conversations, we won't be great at that. So if you go off on a tangent and everyone deems it unworthy, you'll lose a Hank Buck. So tangent with care. And for this, the scariest of months, we are doing something a little different. Each episode in October is covering a topic that is one of our panelists' greatest fears. So as always, we will introduce this week's topic with the traditional science poem, this week, from me. I pull my tie out from the drawer, tie it carefully two times more. They will see me on that floor. I'm going to Studio 54. They will see me on that floor, though they keep stopping me at the door, no matter how much I beg, implore at the entrance of Studio 54. But I will no longer be ignored. I will win my little war, sliding through my little door, my secret door to Studio 54. The air pushes past. I smell Dior. I hear the bass of the encore, squeezing tighter, tighter more. I am here, in Studio 54. In full attire, I look down for the sparkling, twinkling decor. Through the slats, my vision pours into Studio 54. No one hears my screaming or the thumping music, my throat sore. There is no door, there is no door, packed in tighter than a humidor. Never leaving, evermore, my tomb is Studio 54. Whoa. Studio 54 is like a disco. Was there? It was a disco. (laughs) And a guy tried to break in through an air vent and he died in there. Oh my God. Oh. I didn't know that story, so I was very confused about why we were going to a nightclub. Yeah. (laughs) So that is terrifying. I I read this story about a guy who jumped into the air vents at Studio 54, and then like several days later, somebody was like, it smells like a cat died in here. Uh. Oh no, it was a man though. Yeah. Yowza. <laughs> so ever since then, I've been really afraid of tight spaces. Uh-huh. Okay. That's like particularly bad too, where it's like you you think there's enough space for you to crawl into a thing yeah. and then it gets tighter and tighter and then you can't like, you decide, oh, I've, I may be in too far or like I need to move my arm this way and I can't do it. Like Does that, that, that scares me. Uh, in my mind. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think about breaking into nightclubs all the time. Yeah. (laughs) How are we going to get in here? I want to get into the club, but they won't let me in. He was in a full tuxedo. So he was like just trying to sneak into party. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. Because it was like super exclusive club. Huh. I don't mind like being in a small space as long as there's a way out. But the idea of like being able to like not able to move forever is the thing that is the scariest for me. But this isn't really a science topic. Uh, oh, it's very so I hard guess, to look stuff up about. Yeah, I, guess, I guess small spaces <laughs> is easy enough to define. I, I define it as like, I can't move, it's so small. I define it as the third row of an SUV. <laughs> because every time I have to sit back there, yeah, I your get, knees are I get all that. Up. Yeah. yeah, it's like, this is the position I'm in mm-hmm, I forever. I feel cozy there. Yeah, I'm I, tiny, so I can fit anywhere. Yeah. I always I really need like. to like itch or like move or like 
I just have the urge to like shift and I can't mm-hmm. and I freak out. I do feel that way about airplanes, which I never used to feel like. Like maybe oh. they did make everything small enough that now I'm just oh. like, my legs are up a little too far. My feet feel weird. And I just want to like crawl out of my skin and beat everybody up on the plane or something. I don't know what you guys decided to do with this, but I'm excited <laughs> to find out because it's certainly you could go any any old direction. Did you look up any science about this? <laughs> I, I looked up claustrophobia. I don't know. I, I feel like a lot of terms have been thrown around for this episode, too. Like enclosed spaces versus small spaces versus mm-hmm. other things, yeah. too. Does everyone know what claustrophobia is? Does it, do all the listeners know? Is that a common enough yeah. word? So it's just like a fear of being enclosed in a space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's like linked with panic disorders and anxiety mm. disorders mm-hmm. where it's not always rational. It can sometimes be caused by trauma. So like if you were locked in a confined space, then like that can psychologically affect you the rest of your life. There's also another word that I found called clithrophobia or clithrophobia. Couldn't find a pronunciation, only found the word. Claustrophobia is the fear of being in a confined space. Clithrophobia or clithrophobia is being trapped. Right. In it. Mm. So there's like a slight difference mm, okay. between those two things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The example here is being locked in a small space such as a closet, abandoned refrigerator, or the trunk of a car. Abandoned refrigerator? <laughs> yeah, that's a thing. Yeah, I feel like Who abandons a refrigerator? That was, used to happen a lot more. Yeah, often. there was oh. this thing where you like, you like, there was no way to open a refrigerator from the inside. What? And they had to like change how refrigerators were made because like people died. Yeah, it's like <laughs> something that pops up huh. in old cartoons and stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, it was like a known problem that we have now completely forgotten about because <laughs> yeah. now to open a refrigerator, you basically need to blow on them. <laughs> yeah. So I guess that means it's time for <laughs> where Stefan has brought three science facts for our education and enjoyment, somehow tangentially related to small spaces. <laughs> but only one of those facts is real, and we have to guess which is the real one. And if we do, we get a Hank Buck. If we don't, Stefan gets the Hank Buck. Yeah. Stefan, what are your three Weird space facts, but not outer space. But they are outer space. Oh! <laughs> being a human in space, very risky. Which of these three things is a technology that is being developed to mitigate a risk that you might encounter on the ISS? Okay. Mm. Which is a very enclosed space. Mm. It is. You can't go outside or you'll die! You'll die! Number one, water-filled suits that would protect astronauts while the inside of the space station is irradiated to curb the spread of mold. <laughs> Number two... A fire extinguisher that sucks rather than blows in order to contain <laughs> fires more quickly and safely in space. Or number three, a laser air purifier that could continuously purify the circulating air in the station without the need for replacement filters. So we've got one, a water-filled space suit so that they can irradiate the space station while you're in your water suit. Two, a fire extinguisher that sucks instead of blows, which is also useful for when you lay a real big stinky fart. Or three, <laughs> a laser air purifier that just that just like heat seeks on the, the p- impurities and zaps them. I do know that space stations are crazy moldy. They are bad mold and like it's a problem. <laughs> but is it a problem? It is a problem. Why is it a problem? I think you, you decided... can't like look at something and be like, wow, there's a mold all over the place. Uh-huh. This isn't a problem. They release spores and then people sneeze mm. and it's unhealthy for your lungs. I think it's probably and yeah. maybe it's also growing inside of the stuff. Yeah, and, but Mir like, was really nasty and they couldn't do anything about it. And it so was they fine. Threw it into the atmosphere. It, it threw itself. <laughs> <laughs> I think that one is very plausible. But mm-hmm. I think that seems like more trouble than it's worth. Yeah. yeah. Water suits 
like the idea of them, I can't wrap my brain around it. Do you plug in somewhere and then fill up your spacesuit with water, but not your head? Uh, but then what's your head doing when it's the radiation? Yeah, no, you got to get your head in there too. You got to breathe. You got a breather. Oh, you got a breather. Mm. And you're breathing out that you got just a snorkel. <laughs> like the opposite of the being gagged, where the only thing on the oh. outside is your mouth. So like that a straw. <laughs> Yeah, so it's a giant latex suit with a mouth hole, and that's it. (laughs) Fire extinguishers are very important on the International Space Station. If there is fire, everyone dies. Mm -hmm. It eats Mm -hmm. up all the oxygen and also fire. I I think they are always looking at new ways to do fire extinguishers. Can you suck up a fire? Can you suck up a fire? Sari Riley, can you (laughs) suck up a fire? I was going to ask, what's the difference between this fire extinguisher and a vacuum? Do they have vacuums to suck up dust? Yeah, well, except probably it would need to go real fast. But I feel like that wouldn't help. Maybe it would if you got it really uh, close to the... Because I feel like mostly it would just, like, draw air toward where you would created the low-pressure area, and that would just feed the fire. It's not like it's sucking the oxygen away. There's just more there. A chamber or something that you put Mm. over it, and then you suck the fire into a fireproof Hmm. bag. I've never seen Ghostbusters, but this is what I imagine the Ghostbusting machine is like. That's not how (laughs) (laughs) Never mind. They use lasers. You're thinking of Luigi's Mansion. Oh, I did watch that, yes. He uses a a vacuum. So I guess what a laser air purifier would do. Is it would like it would suck air through, and then there'd be lasers in there, and it would it would vaporize whatever things were all the mold spores, presumably. Do they have lasers? Can lasers? Are they? Do yeah, they lasers can do that. Okay, it didn't require a lot of energy. I can't believe the laser one. I refuse to believe that that's the one. Okay, I don't like the fire extinguisher one anymore either, though. I'll go with water suit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm super excited about water suit. I like water suit. You do want? Do you want to be in a water suit? Kind of want to try nice. being in a water suit. I would like it. It's like a water bed, but all around but you. A suit. So you just like flop around. And yeah, I think it'd be an interesting sensation. Could you use like the Epsom salts that they have at the float tank Ooh. places so you don't get dehydrated? Mm. Oh, I think I meant so you just float, float inside of my water suit. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that too. Make it neutral buoyancy. Yeah, you're already in space though. So. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> That would not be important. Uh. Uh, I want to go with water suit. Oh, two water. Okay. We're going to get fleeced by Stefan. We are. I I love Luigi's Mansion. (laughs) I'm going to go with the fire extinguisher just for fun. I just can't believe that Stefan, not to, and this is not an insult. I can't believe that (laughs) anybody here would come up with this water suit idea. It's just too weird. So it was the fire extinguisher. Ah! Yes! <laughs> My boy Luigi never lets me down. <laughs> yes, as you were talking about, fire is super bad in a space station. And most of the space craft use like CO2 extinguishers mm-hmm. like we have on Earth. And those seem to be better for extinguishing like electrical fires, which are probably the most common source of a fire in space. So there's a couple issues with those, which is that you can't just dump a bunch of CO2 into that small of a space sure. without putting oxygen masks on first. And so that leaves time for the fire to spread. And also, if you're blowing, that can spread the combustibles and things around. So this team at Toyohashi University of Technology has developed the vacuum extinguish method. And it's basically a really thin nozzle that like uses a vacuum to, to vacuum up 
the combustibles and the flame into a vacuum chamber. Mm. And it doesn't spread anything around. And you can use it right away because you don't have to put an oxygen mask on. Mm. As you were describing it, I was thinking a cool thing would be if you combined these two ideas and you had like an outer layer shooting CO2 out and then an inner layer of sucking it all back Ooh. in. Mm. So that the, the it was like if it ended up sucking some like atmosphere uh-huh. toward the fire, it would be sucking CO2 toward the fire. You're welcome, NASA. <laughs> <laughs> People have proposed water-filled suits as a way to protect astronauts from radiation on like mm-hmm. longer trips or okay. if you're in space for long enough, like you're going to end up in a low shielded area at some point. And right. so having a water-filled suit might do something, but it seems like you might need... Too much water? I don't know. It's just pee. What if you just had like a bag around you essentially and then you yeah. just peed into that? Oh, so, like, all the time all and never stopped yeah. forever? <laughs> That's it. Yeah, what, what if you That's did that? Whole thing. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. I just want a big bag around me that I pee into. <laughs> no, to protect your radiation only in space, not in everyday uh-huh. life. I don't want a hamster ball full of pee around me. <laughs> Mold is definitely an ongoing problem on the ISS. And so a team exposed the two most common molds that are found on the ISS to extreme amounts of radiation and found that they can survive up to 200 times the lethal dose for humans. The laser purifier thing I just made up. But I was (laughs) counting on the fact that no one here knew how uh, air purifiers work. It seems like air purifiers rely on negatively charged ions. They release them and then it attaches to the like particles and then also that attaches to the filter medium. So yours is like that, but with lasers. But with lasers. (laughs) So way cooler, guys. (laughs) What I want is an air purifier that I can put my hand in and not take my hand back out of. (laughs) Next up, we're going to take a short break and then it's time for the fact off. SciShow Tangents is brought to you by Rocket Money. If I asked you how many subscription services you had, you think you could name them all? And before you just start naming streaming apps, remember that basically everything has a subscription these days. Video games, dating apps, food delivery apps. It's a subscription service world. We're just living in it. And with all of these subscriptions, it can feel like money is just flying out of your account. And that, frankly, sucks. But Rocket Money can help. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money can help you negotiate to lower some bills for you by up to 20%. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in total canceled subscriptions. Escape from the planet of the subscription services and stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash tangents. That's rocketmoney.com slash tangents. Rocketmoney.com slash T-A-N-G-E-N-T-S. Welcome back. Hank Buck totals. Sari has one. I have one for my poem. Stefan because you fooled us with big weird water suits has two. And now it's time for the fact. How many do I have? Oh, you got zero. Uh, I skipped you. (laughs) And now it's time for the fact of two panelists have brought science facts present to the others to blow our minds. And we will award the Hank Buck to the fact that blew our mind the most. It's Sam versus Sari for some high stakes science battles here tonight at the Coliseum. Hit me with your science facts. Who first? 
Uh, what's the topic? <laughs> Small, Small spaces. spaces. Sure, of course. You're That's... terrified of them, remember? <laughs> <laughs> the person who's going to go first today is the person who has the biggest bathroom. The biggest Ooh. bathroom? Yeah. My bathroom is tiny. My bathroom is also pretty small. Mm. You have a bathtub? I do. Okay, Serious bathroom too. also has a slanted ceiling, so like Probably oh, there's much than... less volume. Yeah. Yeah. If you stand up over the toilet without thinking, then you hit your head. <laughs> Yours is probably smaller. I have a lot of headspace. <laughs> yeah, okay. It's going to go by volume here, not square feet, and have Sarah go first. Okay. So in 1984, there were a group of Navy specialists living and working by San Diego Bay because of the U.S. Navy Marine Mammal Program, the NMMP, where the military kept marine mammals in captivity to train them to do underwater tasks. Hmm. But in May, they started to hear some strange noises. One person would hear muted conversations that sounded like they were coming from like adjacent piers as he was walking to the parking lot. And another set of divers were making underwater repairs when one thought he heard his supervisor over the underwater wet phone give a command. So he swam up and asked, who told me to get out? And they solved the mystery when they realized the real culprit behind these voices was one male beluga named Nosi, who lived in one of the enclosures without very much company besides the humans and a couple female belugas. And he sort of learned how to mimic human speech. And this... It was something that people had heard about with belugas, but this is the first instance where humans were able to do repeated observations and recordings of this. And this is a normal beluga. This is no see. Nosey doesn't sound like a person. Nosey sounds like what people what sound like when you're underwater. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 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 it's like vaguely like Charlie Brown parents. Yeah. It's kind of mushy. But the rhythm of the sounds were close to the pattern of human speech. Uh-huh. And like the, the frequency of the noises matched humans and you could hear were much lower than the usual beluga noises. Mm-hmm. And it took him a lot of effort to do that because yeah. the way that belugas um, make noise is by inflating nasal sacs near their blowhole and Me forcing too. air through them. Yeah. So like they don't have vocal folds, mm-hmm. I guess. So he overinflated oh, the no. nasal slacks basically to be like, I want to sound like human. Yeah. Lonely whale. I need friends. Yeah. Talk back to me. Or <laughs> <laughs> was he just bored? So we don't really know the why of the behavior because we know cetaceans like belugas and dolphins are really social and get really stressed out when they're in enclosed spaces. Mm. This is my tie to the topic. (laughs) (laughs) And wild belugas don't make this kind of human-like frequencies. So because Nosy was captive, they speculated that it was some sort of like a coping mechanism to captivity and mindless mimicry rather than I'm actually trying to communicate with the humans, but more like if I make these noises, I get attention. That is my like social interaction now Mm. because... I'm not in the open ocean and can't mm-hmm. interact with a lot of other belugas. Hmm. I feel like the way that that a beluga would mimic human speech might tell us something about how beluga speech works. The way that they hear us and thus the way they try to like 
compare it back to us indicates maybe that like their system of communication isn't so granular as as like parrots or songbirds or mm-hmm. humans, but like contains information in sort of more bulk ways. Right. That is just a, all guessing. Okay. Uh, so Sam, you got a fact for us? In 1954, a biologist at Kyoto University put a bunch of fruit flies in containers, covered the containers with blackout cloth, and let them just do their fly thing, which is mostly eating food and having sex. Now, 64 years later and 1,400 generations of flies later, uh, a genetic line of these original flies still exists, still in total darkness, and is still being studied at Kyoto University. Uh, They're called dark flies. They're the dark flies. They're the dark Mm -hmm. flies. And they have How many years? About 64. Jesus. Mm -hmm. Of flies who have, like, we've forced them to live in the dark for 64 years. Yeah, the the papers I read said that that's the equivalent of 30,000 human years. (gasps) That seems like a weird false equivalency of some sort. No, well, by generation. Sure. Number of, number of like, birth cycles. Right. They have some weird side effects from living in darkness for so long, like the hairs on them are extra long, which obviously people think they probably use to, like, feel their way around and feel each other. I thought they might be cold. They could be cold. Or or they didn't care what they looked like anymore, so they just stopped training. (laughs) They can't cut their hair. (laughs) (laughs) And they outcompete normal flies when breeding in the dark. And they think that that's because they have more pheromone sensors so that they can also find each other in the dark. So then also on the topic of breeding, dark flies lay more eggs than normal flies. And researchers aren't really sure why, but they've mapped a bunch of places in the dark fly DNA that deviate from normal fly DNA. Mm -hmm. And they have narrowed it down to like 84 specific genes they think it might be. And one of the likely ones is that there's a light receptor gene that in normal flies is just like donked up. And it's not in dark flies anymore. So they might just be healthier because Mm -hmm. they didn't need that light receptor gene. This line of flies may still exist, but the researcher who began the experiment, Dr. Siuichi Mori, died in 2007. So he's a ghost now. It's a Halloween (laughs) episode. (laughs) Oh, when they put them in light, they revert to to the regular fly day-night cycle of activity within three hours or something like that. They can still do it even after 30,000 years equivalent, (laughs) but they're hairy. (laughs) <laughs> just a little just a little bit more hairy. I don't think I have a good sense of evolutionary time in the same way I don't yeah. have a good sense of geologic time. Mm-hmm. And so to know that even after the thousands of generations, mm-hmm. they don't change very much because they're successful enough in their right. environment. Mm-hmm. They're still breeding. They're still having babies. So we have to pick between 1984 Navy specialists Ooh. in San Diego hearing a uh, beluga going, <laughs> or Sam's <laughs> 64 years of dark flies. We're going to do it on three. Are you ready, Stefan? Yep. One, two, three. Sam. Sam. And now it's time for Ask the Science Couch, where we have some listener questions for our couch of finely honed scientific minds, or just mind. This question is from Hammer Sasha. How big would an enclosed space full of plants need to be to produce enough oxygen for one human who is trapped inside with those plants? (laughs) I think I have the answer. Okay. Is it 680? What units? Plants. (laughs) (laughs) Plants. <laughs> <laughs> if it's like oak trees, yes. Yeah. Uh, so I've heard, I think there was a NASA study where they, it was studying air purification of like plants and they needed 680. 
I think in the size of a typical home was the result oh, of wow. that study. That's a lot of plants. But like 680 house plants or what? I don't know what plants they were using. Just it could have been oak Individual <laughs> single-celled microalgae. Has everybody here seen Polly Shore's Biodome? And if not, because mm. definitely if Sari hasn't, we're going to watch <laughs> it in my house right now. Okay, we're back from watching Biodome. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> it was amazing. Wasn't it great, guys? It was very Love funny. that movie. When you went... Uh, Wheezing the juice. <laughs> is that that one? That's in Man. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's the one I was thinking of too. I was like, uh, but anyway, Polly Shore. Polly Shore. Polly Shore. This is a weirdly specific question. Somebody um, has someone sealed up in a dome. Yeah, <laughs> like, oh no, I need to buy some plants. Do I need? <laughs> yeah. There was the biosphere experiment, right. Biosphere 2, the first one being mm. this one that we're in right now. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's why it's called Biosphere Wait. 2? Yep. Yeah. Earth? Uh-huh. I had never heard yeah. of it before. I think I was just on the cusp of, I read about it for like an hour. I'm so excited about Biosphere 2. It's so weird. <laughs> it is weird. I'm very surprised you don't know about Biosphere 2. No, they had their second trial from like, I forget, June to September 1994. So like right after I was born. Right. Mm. And so I just never heard about it because yeah. I was a wee baby. But <laughs> yeah. So what's Biosphere 2? Uh, it was It's a giant glass enclosure that was supposed to be like closed to the outside. Okay. Just like Biodome. And, uh, and they wanted all the plants inside to sort of like recycle all the nutrients mm-hmm. and oxygen. But it turned out that it didn't work because the foundation that they poured was made of concrete and it kept on eating up oxygen and outgassing CO2, which is part of how concrete cures. Oh. And the, all everybody was like, we're dying in here and have to leave. What I read about it also said that um, the microbes in the soil yeah. respired more than expected because mm-hmm. of the type of soil they chose or uh, something like yeah. that. They didn't account for that in their calculations, however many they did right. about the dome. But it's so cool. It is. I don't we know. learned so much stuff. Like, it was a really worthwhile project. And, like, yeah. I'm totally in favor of trying again with a bigger mm. dome. They had different <laughs> biomes in it. So yeah. They had, like, a rainforest biome and an ocean with a coral reef. Oh, and wow. Uh, and what? wetlands. There was a point in this afternoon where I sent this to my friend, my, like, my nerd friends, who was like, "I just learned about Biosphere too. If I was rich and bored, I would just like do a book about it instead of doing anything else with yeah. my life. I just want to like go who visit." Paid for it. Texas philanthropist mm. Ed Bass, who had inherited his family's oil fortune, but took on mm. ecological causes, two hundred nice. million dollars into the project, huh. mm-hmm. and that's... that seems like a deal for a biodome. <laughs> I'm glad you think so. <laughs> I think that's part of, like, the controversy surrounding it, where they recruited people with scientific backgrounds to help design it, but it was not always linked with a university or linked with, like, a solid data collection programs. It felt, from what my understanding, a little more haphazard of, like, let's create this thing, let's send people to live inside, and let's make mm-hmm. all these qualitative mm-hmm. observations mm-hmm. about how it's going. Mm-hmm. And, like, oh, no, they're running out of oxygen, let's pump it back in. Right. As opposed to... Like controlled experiments, doing multiple trials with multiple types of separate domes. And then the way it ended was really like politically messy. It's still out there somewhere, I think. It's in Arizona. You can yeah. go visit. It's like Is it an attraction. Huh. I don't think it's an attraction, but it's being maintained by the University of Arizona now, huh. starting from 2011. I've Weird. got an idea for a reality show. <laughs> <laughs> Can I be on it if it's living in the biosphere? It's biosphere three. <laughs> yeah. Okay. How many plants do you need? To- <laughs> One Gizmodo article said <laughs> in a 10 by 10 foot airlock. They didn't show their work, so I don't know. 
about 300 to 500 plants. Oh. I don't know how big these plants need to be. You couldn't fit that many uh, plants. Yeah. And basically, it seems like there is a lot of subjectivity into this because you need to determine like what type of plant it is, how much leaf surface area there is, how much does it uh, photosynthesize versus respire. Mm-hmm. I don't know. There was some discussion around using C4 and um, CAM plants. So there's different types of plants and the way that they respire. Oh, okay. Basically like photosynthesis takes in carbon dioxide, spews out oxygen. Photorespiration usually happens at night and that's when it consumes oxygen to use up other things. And so there are some plants that have adaptations to make that photorespiration pathway use less oxygen, essentially. And those are like the C4 and CAM pathways. Mm-hmm. And I don't need to go into the molecular biology mm-hmm. of it because it's really boring and Calvin cycle <laughs> People who have looked into using plants to like, boost the oxygen levels of indoor spaces mm-hmm. are like, well, you want to choose their plants carefully so that right. they're introducing as much oxygen as possible and taking out as much carbon dioxide as possible because when humans are in a space, we're generating a lot of carbon dioxide. Yeah. Right. Ultimately, they are bulking carbon inside of them. And so they are in, like increasing like a net amount of oxygen until they fall over and decompose. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, Back to net neutral. Yeah, right. and that's the other problem is like, uh, how long are you staying in this room with just plants providing you oxygen? Because as soon as one dies, that throws off your calculations and throws off your yeah, system. Yeah, because then mm-hmm. it's producing carbon dioxide. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not just not consuming <laughs> oxygen. It's off-gassing. Also looking into, like, space stuff and going to Mars and all that for this episode and hearing about Biosphere 2, it seems clearer and clearer to me that it is, it is extremely hard to recreate yeah, the, like Biosphere systems. One is real good, and we should do what we can <laughs> to keep it stable. Uh, we're gonna have to exit it in a politically messy way too, though. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> inevitably the exit will be politically messy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there isn't really an answer to this question because I didn't feel like doing math. Um, <laughs> Hear that? But you should contact. I mean. Who, uh, so many botanists that I'm sure would be so excited to do this calculation and like give you the species of plants. But it's not actually really that possible, right? Is I don't think. No. Not really. Okay. No, I mean, bi- like as Biosphere 2 indicated, though, I do want to go to Arizona to go to Biosphere 2 now that I know that it's open to the public. We should record an episode from Biosphere, Biosphere 2. 2. Or just Ooh. all of our future episodes and, <laughs> or start a new channel. SciShow Biosphere 2. <laughs> We're just going to move into Biosphere 2. Yeah. <laughs> I call it the fish room. I want to be in the in the coral yeah. reef. Mm-hmm. I want to be in the one with Polly Shore. Okay, we'll bring him too. <laughs> but uh, he says that, right? Yeah, that's correct. Good job. Uh, so if you want to ask the Science Couch your questions, follow us on Twitter at SciShowTangents, where we will tweet out topics for upcoming episodes every week. Thank you to at KBeamSupreme, at PrincessLotus18, and everybody else who tweeted us your questions this week. Final Hank Buck scores for the episode. I continue my losing streak tied with Sam at the bottom with one... Uh-huh. Sari and Stefan tie for the win with two. Ooh. Wow. Things are turning around. Coming up in the world. Yeah. Oh, man. It, not if you're me. <laughs> Do you want to know, Hank, especially you, the scores? No, not really. <laughs> <laughs> All right. In last place, can you guess who it is? is? It it's me? Hank. Oh, 59 uh, points. Oh, gosh. In second to last place, Stefan, 63 points. It. Whoa. Whoa. That's. I got a deficit to make up. <laughs> Next up, Sari with 66 points. Mm-hmm. 
finally me. 67 points. Right. Still oh. champion forever. <laughs> <laughs> I'm climbing up. If you like this show and you want to help us out, it's easy to do that. You can leave us a review wherever you listen. That's very helpful and lets us know what you like about the show. Also, we look to iTunes reviews for topic ideas for future episodes. So leave them there when you leave your reviews. Second, you can tweet out your favorite moment from the show. I love that. And finally, if you want to show your love for SciShow Tangents, tell, tell people, people about, about us. us. If you want to read more about any of today's topics, check out scishowtangents.org to find links to our sources. Thank you for joining us. I've been Hank Green. I've been Sari Riley. I've been Stefan Chin. And I've been Sam Schultz. SciShow Tangents is a co-production of Complexly and the Wicked Wonderful Team at WNYC Studios. It's created by all of us and produced by Caitlin Hoffmeister and Sam Schultz, who also edits a lot of these episodes along with Hiroka Matsushima. Our eerie editorial assistant is Deboki Chakravarti. Our sinister sound design is by Joseph Tunamedish. Our scary social media organizer is Victoria Bongiorno, and we couldn't make any of this without our putrid patrons on Patreon. Thank you, and remember, the mind is not a coffin to be filled, but a jack-o'-lantern to be lighted. <laughs> But one more thing. <laughs> Apollo 10 was a test run for the 1969 moon landing. Mm -hmm. And during that flight, a piece of poop was just mysteriously floating through the air. And there's very funny <laughs> records of the astronauts on board talking about this turd. Hey, could, do you want to do a, a dramatic reenactment? Oh, we could. Yeah. Okay. They saw the turd in the air. And then one person was like... I didn't do it. It ain't one of mine. I don't think it's one of mine. Mine was a little more sticky than that. Throw that away. Well, did they figure it out? No, no one admitted to it. There are only three people it could be. So, <laughs> Man, I'm glad they all had really good, like, BMs. I feel like some of mine... If not, you would destroy the spaceship. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>